Hi everybody, I'm Dr Hester Wilson. I'm a GP and addiction specialist working in Sydney and welcome to you all today. I'm going to be talking with my wonderful colleague Martina Gleeson, who's a GP who also works in Sydney and a pretty fabulous person all around. We're going to be talking about opioid agonist treatment. And this is in the context of the New South Wales program, which provides treatment for people that have opiate use disorder, opioid dependency um, with opioid agonist treatment. So I'm talking buprenorphine methadone. So we're gonna be talking about the ins and outs of this for us as GPs. So I'm gonna hand over to Martina, go for it, mate. <laughs> Thanks very much, Hester. Um, I'm really looking forward to picking your brains and learning from your expertise. So uh, we're getting more safe script notifications these days, which is wonderful. Um, it's especially wonderful when you get a green notification. Um, but it's making most of us come to terms with the fact that some of our patients are taking concerning amounts of opiates and some of our patients are taking more opiates than we thought, um, sometimes in the context of pain, but possibly also sometimes in the context of uh, self-medicating for another problem that they have. So, Hester, how do I go about identifying who is the most appropriate patient for me to be considering for opiate, opioid agonist treatment? Yeah, that's a really great question, Martina. And it's not, there's no simple answer. So I just want to take a step back for a moment and talk about, first of all, it's absolutely clear there are a group of people and the first ones that come to mind for me are people who are injecting heroin. So they're injecting, it's a high risk substance, it's not prescribed, it's not, not a prescribed um, medication in Australia. And they will very commonly come in saying, oh my goodness, I need to get on treatment, please help me. So they're easy. And, you know, we sometimes look back longingly to the days when people just used heroin. We still do have people that use heroin now and we do um, need and want to continue to provide treatment for them. But they're probably not a group of people that we see commonly in general practice. But if you do, you know, we'll talk about how you might go about um, offering them that help. But in the general practice setting, Martina, as you were saying, with SafeScript, we're actually got more visibility around what our patients might be doing. And yes, like you, I'm finding my patients are telling me what's going on. Um, and But occasionally we'll find some surprises. The issue is really working out who has an opioid dependency. Now, just being really clear, an opioid dependency needs to be more than physiological dependence or neuroadaptivity. So what I mean by that is, if somebody is prescribed an opioid, it's really likely that they're gonna develop some tolerance. So need a larger dose to have the effect that they're looking for. And then when they try and stop, they might have your classic withdrawal symptoms. For, so with opioid withdrawal. And that includes things like nausea, vomiting, gut cramps, diarrhea, sweats, goose pimples, deep bone aches, incredible craving for the medicines and pupillary dilatation. That doesn't mean that they have got an opioid use disorder or a fair dinkum opioid dependency. It means they do have withdrawal and tolerance, but in the, in the uh, situation where that is from a prescribed medication, they do not have an opioid dependency. They're not a drug dependent person as such. So what we're looking for on top of that is other issues that are going on for them. 
I do want to just pause for a moment and just say if you're going to start someone on OAT, they do need to have neuroadaptation. They do need to have tolerance and withdrawal. It's really core to that. But that is not enough to be saying that this person has an opioid dependency and prescription opioid use disorder. They need to have the other issues going on. So that can be injecting multiple prescribers really very rapid increases in dose, using for other um, indications other than pain. So to relieve their emotional space, to get high, to become intoxicated, continuing to use at those high levels despite coming to harm, trying to cut down on unsuccessfully doing it. Um, and so it's, there's a number of different things that get in there that tell us about risk. The other really important thing is dose. And in itself, dose doesn't tell us that someone has an opioid use disorder or opioid dependency, but we know that harm is related to dose. So if somebody is on a high dose, you need to intervene. And it may not be with OAT in the end, but you need to intervene. And I'm talking oral morphine equivalents of greater than 100 milligrams a day which is around about 70 you know, milligrams or 75 milligrams of oxycodone. So what kind of intervention are you talking about for someone who's on that over 100 milligrams of morphine equivalents a day who has the signs of neuroadaptation and are experiencing withdrawal, but not demonstrating some of those other criteria that would make you say that they have a DSM-5 definition of opioid use disorder. What kind of intervention do we need to be talking about? This can be really tricky because you may have someone that's been on these medications for a long period of time. It may have been in the past that they went to a pain specialist who supported it or their GP supported it, or you as their GP supported it because we used to think that this was okay. But things have changed. And we now know that those larger doses of opioids and it's over an oral morphine equivalent of 100 milligrams a day, your risk of harm increases. And I'm talking overdose here. I'm talking non-fatal overdose with cognitive impairment that is ongoing or fatal overdose where people die. The other issue is to be aware of what else people have other medical conditions that they have that increase their risk. For example, if they have respiratory disease that decrease, you know, increases their risk, um, they can't manage sedation in the same way. Or if they're on other medications, other sedating medications, sedating antipsychotics, sedating antidepressants, sedating antihistamines, if they're using alcohol, anything that actually adds to that risk is important as well. So if you've got someone that you look at and you go, you're on a dose higher than 100 oral morphine equivalents, I'm worried about you, I'm worried about you because of your respiratory reserve, I'm worried about you because I know that you're using other sedating medications, you need to have a chat to them around your concerns. And sometimes that takes a bit of time that people kind of go, yeah, but I've been on this forever, doc. Why are you giving me a hard time? And that's because we have greater evidence and greater knowledge around the risks. Uh, and, and at the same time, it is acknowledging that it's really tough for people who've been on medications like this long-term. But it's not okay just to say, oh, well, they present okay and they've been on this for a long time, so they're cool. My experience with this is it is a long, ongoing, sometimes could take quite some time, a conversation about what is going on and why you're concerned and really 
helping them to understand the risks, but also what benefits are they getting from their medicines? Because really commonly when you drill down to what's happening with their pain, it actually isn't treating their pain very well. And so they're very likely to have a pain condition that is not opioid responsive. The other things that you can do while you're having that conversation to, to really decrease harm and ensure that you're doing the best you can in that situation is first of all to, talk, to think about, do they need stage supply? So is it a good idea to get them to go into pharmacy more, more frequently? And that could be daily to weekly, whatever I think you kind of feel is, is appropriate in terms of, of the risk. If there's someone that's not managing to, you know, they, they take all their opioids in the first half of the week and then have none left, you know, they're running out before the end of their script, then getting them to just pick up a smaller amount helps them to contain that use and makes it safer. The use of naloxone, and there's a naloxone intranasal spray that you can help, you can prescribe for people and train them and train their families and people um, that are with them to, to recognise when they might be having an overdose and how to use that is another way to really decrease harm, but also at the same time really flags, this is risky, there is real risk to this and there are reasons to be concerned. Then it's working collaboratively with your patient and the pharmacy. Pharmacists are super important here, and maybe the counsellor, other doctors and services that are involved in that person's care to gently, slowly bring that dose down. Flagging here, get the pain clinic involved, make sure that if you can, and I know that's always not always easy, but getting those other support structures in place, whether it's pain clinic, whether it's addiction clinic, if you wish. So gently over time, cutting that dose down, working collaboratively with your patients, seeing them frequently, and the vast majority of them will actually manage to get the dose down and get it down to a safer level. And what we know for a lot of people, when they start to get that dose down, they go, you know what, I actually feel better on this lower dose. And very frequently, then you can work with them to actually stop it completely. And their pain actually improves. It's not easy, it does take some work and it, and, and it really is the work that you're doing together as a team. But when they stop, if they can stop, tell you what, they invariably will say, my pain is better, I feel better. My partner is happier because I'm back. I've got my sense of humor back. My sex drive is better. You know, we're having better relationships. My life is better for this. I still have pain. I've still got to manage my pain, but actually I'm doing much better. So that's really excellent advice and really helpful for our regular patients who we are, have engaged and have a relationship with. Obviously, that's going to be a much more therapeutic process. What about the patients who they get down to a certain level and they, they can't get further, but there's a subtle change in how they experience life and it becomes apparent that it's not the return of pain that they're getting, but they're getting withdrawal symptoms. They just can't tolerate any further reduction in dose. They start getting obsessed about when to take the next dose. Would that be someone who's appropriate for opiate replacement therapy? And if so, what do I need to do to prescribe for them? My answer to that, Martina, is perhaps... Um, you know, you are going to you expect when you're going to cut, cut, cutting down somebody's dose that they may well get withdrawals. You know, they're likely to have neuroadaptation. Neuro they're likely to have withdrawals. Um, and it's doing it slowly at a rate that they can manage and the withdrawals settle. For some people, that just doesn't work. For some of those, you've got to wonder, 
is there actually an opioid use disorder going on here? And what are the other behaviours that become clear over time? Are they willing to have a go with opioid agonist treatment? I do suspect that there are some people that it, you can get them down to a dose of, I don't know, maybe 50 or 40 oral morphine um, equivalent daily dose. And maybe they can't get down any lower than that, but maybe it's managing their pain and there's no other aberrant behaviours. I wouldn't be pushing that person to go on to OAT. But for someone where they can't get it down, they've got withdrawals, they're not coping, it's clear that there are other behaviours going on here and they are just saying, I can't do this, I need, I need to do this differently. Then opioid agonist treatment is a fantastic option. Ideally, you want it to be an option of choice not an option of last resort. But I do have to say that sometimes that's what, that's the point that people get to where they end up having no other choice. And that's unfortunate because it really does set up a, re a real struggle there for people where they feel like their control's been taken away and they've been given no choice. So working with your patients around the benefits of treatment, around how you can actually work together to trial this and, and, you know, really more often than not, when people actually get onto it, they will say to me, oh my God, Hester, why did I spend so long not wanting this because this has actually changed my life? Uh, and that is a really good flag that they actually have an opioid use disorder or, or a fair dinkum opioid dependency and that this is the right treatment. It was interesting around the time that you couldn't get codeine over the counter anymore, uh, the number of patients that presented not not a large amount but I did have some that you know acknowledged that they'd been stockpiling and pharmacy shopping and um you know the the problem was a lot bigger than they were comfortable admitting uh they'd been ignoring the con the side effects of the increased ibuprofen and paracetamol dosing they'd been taking and <clears throat> one or two of my patients ended up needing to try this treatment instead because and but they they weren't just experiencing withdrawal like when you looked at the dsm-5 they some of i mean they might not have been doing illegal things at the time but when what they were doing became illegal it was <laughs> they had to deal with the issue that they had so if i've got let, let's talk about an easy patient someone who comes in and who says i use heroin and it's ruining my life and I want assistance. Let's not make it too cloudy, um, a patient presentation. What do I need to do to prescribe for that person? So in someone where it's clear that they have an opioid use disorder or an opioid dependency and they're saying, I want treatment, your job's half done. That, that is brilliant. You do need to make an assessment around how complex are the dynamics of this person's life. So can I actually manage it in my setting? And it's not whether you've got the skills to do it or not, it's, it's the setting. You know, so as a GP working in general practice, yes, we've got lovely practice nurses, we've got lovely um, counsellors that sometimes we work with, but the bottom line is we're, it, we're going to be managing it. Uh, and so if they've got other complexities in their life, they're homeless, they've got 
poorly controlled mental health issues. Um, they're using other drugs. If, if there's a complex story there, please get onto your local drug and alcohol team and get them involved. You know, if you've got someone that is requesting treatment, this is one thing that our drug and alcohol services do extremely well to get, get people into treatment. Look, there are some issues in some areas with access just because they don't have capacity. But, you know, really, it's okay if you think, geez, I'm just, this just feels too complex for me, get support. There's DASIS, so the Drug and Alcohol Specialist Advisory Service that can give support, as well as off SafeScript, there's a, a phone line that you can get support there from Drug and Alcohol Specialists and Pain Specialists. But coming back to the person who has stable mental health, is housed, maybe is working, has good family support, had the general health is generally pretty good. They might have hepatitis C, there might be a little bit of other stuff going, but they're pretty stable and they're not using really risky and harmful amounts of other drugs. Heroin's easy peasy to start people in treatment. Now, in terms of treatment, you have two basic options, methadone and buprenorphine. You can go and do an online course, the OTAC course, um, which is the oh, Opioid Treatment Accreditation course, I think is its full name. Um, and there's two parts to that. There's one where you can actually do the full day course, it takes about six hours, and you then can go on and prescribe methadone and buprenorphine. Or you can do a buprenorphine course, which is a shorter course, you're not accredited, and you don't have to do this in order to prescribe buprenorphine. But it's really good little course that just gives you some background and helps you to kind of work through what you need to do. So in a GP setting, if you're thinking you want to um, prescribe, you're thinking, look, this is right. I know this person, you know, they're stable in all other ways. They seriously want this, this treatment. They've actually had it before and it really worked for them. Fantastic, I can start it again. And as a non-accredited GP, you can do that yourself. You absolutely can. I would flag, please, please, if you've got any questions, talk to DASIS, talk to your local drug and alcohol team to get some support if you're not entirely sure, but it's really not that difficult to do. So what you're doing is you first of all want to ensure, yes, they have tolerance and withdrawal. Yes, they want to start this treatment. And you're looking at where you want to actually start them. And the interesting thing with buprenorphine is that there are two options. There's a sublingual option and there's an injectable option. In the general practice setting, you can start both of those. If you're a little bit unsure about it, once again, what you can do is talk to your local drug and alcohol team, get their support in terms of starting the medication. They start it at that service um, and get stabilised and then they come back to you. And they can then, if they're on the sublingual treatment, can pick that up from pharmacy. Or if they're on the injectables, you can either do that through your, through your own clinic with your nurse or there are some pharmacies that are actually doing the injections as well. I have to say this medication is a fantastic medication. It's extremely safe uh, and the injectables are fantastic because it's just inject and forget for the next month. Um, and it really, we know the evidence is clear. It really helps people to get on with their lives um, and, and gives them that breathing space to sort out what is it that I want to do with my life? What is important to me? It helps them to parent their kids. It helps them to achieve their vocational goals. It helps them to kind of reconnect in with family and get life, get life under control again. Um, you mentioned the, um, the OTAC treatment course, and I think you can find that on otac.org.au. Um, are there, do I have to do the full bore or is there some kind of fundamental training I can do? Do I have to do it? Um, 
you don't have to do any training in New South Wales. Any doctor in New South Wales can prescribe for up to 10 people who are already stable in treatment on methadone and 20 people for buprenorphine. And you can actually commence people on treatment with buprenorphine. Methadone is a fantastic drug, a fantastic treatment for opioid agonist um, management, for managing opioid dependence, but it is a bit tricky. It's a bit of an idiosyncratic medication and it does have some risks. Um, so if, you know, so, so the, the rules in New South Wales take that into account. And if you want to actually start people on methadone, you need to do the full OTAC training. But if you are starting someone on buprenorphine, whether it be Suboxone or the injectables, um, you don't actually have to do the training. But the fundamentals course, um, which is on the same website as the full OTAC course, is really great. It's short, it's practical, and it's, 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 I would really encourage people to take a look at it um, because it just gives you a bit of familiarity around this medication and, and, and the ins and outs of prescribing. Um, you know, certainly important things like how you write the S8 script, making sure that you have got an authority um, are important. Um, things to be able to do to do it legally um, but it's but it's um, that training is you don't have to do that training online um, you can certainly get more support from New South Wales Health website has um, um, more information about it they have their pharmacists who are brilliant and there's also as I said before there's the 24 7 DASIS line, which is the Drug and Alcohol Specialist Advisory Service. So they, they're on the end of a phone, you ring that up, it gets answered by um, a intake officer who is generally there a CNC or a clinical nurse consultant who knows their staff. And quite often they can answer a lot of questions. They're great. If they can't, then they will get a drug and alcohol specialist to call you back. And generally, they're pretty good. They will call back in about 20 minutes. One of the things I would say with this treatment is you don't have to rush into it. If somebody comes to you and says, I desperately, desperately want this, I get it, but we're going to do this slowly and gently. I've got to fill in the forms. I want to check, you know, how you're going. I, you know, I want to build that therapeutic alliance, make sure we're making the right decision. So it, it is sometimes people will present saying, I have to have this now. And you have to kind of quiet yourself and quiet them and go, this is a chronic illness. We need to manage this. We're going to set it up for success. Is there any paperwork I need to do? There's a little bit of paperwork. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So all the paperwork is available on the New South Wales um, Health website, and it's basically an authority to prescribe. Now, if somebody has been in treatment before, you do need to check that they've been exited from a previous program because only one person can be the authorised prescriber at a time. But it's an online form PDF, you can fill it in online, you do need to print it out and sign it and then just send it through to um, the the pharma, pharmacotherapy regulatory unit, which is in New South Wales Health. Um, once again, if you've got any questions, they're really helpful. And the times when I ring them up, they can give that the pharmacist there can give you some support if you need it. If you've got any concerns, they can be really good as well. Um, but you basically fill that in, you send it through and you can't prescribe until you get an authority. So they will send that back to you or you can give them a call. Um, and it generally, if it's not 
urgent, 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 generally it takes a couple of days to get that authority back from PIU. Um, and then your next step is, am I going to start this with um, the sublinguals? Uh, am I looking at doing injections? What's going to work for this person? Once again, getting the drug and alcohol team involved if you wish, or in New South Wales, we're fortunate that we have some private clinics who dose, and they can actually do some dosing for you with that, with a lot of kind of um, overview and support from the nurses that work in that setting, or through your local pharmacy. Pharmacies do need to be accredited, and so it's a good idea just to check in with that pharmacy that they are accredited and have done this before. Um, and they are, the ones that do this are brilliant, not, not all pharmacies do. The pharmacies that do do this are really brilliant. They know their stuff um, and they can help you in, in terms of, of the dosing. Ideally, when you're starting someone in treatment, you want them to be in very mild to moderate withdrawal. So have a few with withdrawal symptoms, but not be climbing the walls and hanging on by the skin of their teeth. Um, and you start generally on a low dose, check that it's okay, and then you build it up. With buprenorphine, you build it up quite quickly. Um, and it, um, it's, it, it works incredibly well and helps people to actually stabilise very, very quickly. The other thing that I would add as well that I always do in my general practice setting is I, I get them to sign like a kind of, um, yeah, roles and responsibilities, you know, what I will do, what they will do. And there's some really good models of those on the OTAC site as well. Um, you know, and so things for me is that, you know, I am your prescriber. You don't access any opioids from elsewhere. You come to me. We have appointments. You come to your appointments. I promise I will be here. I will manage this with you. We'll do this together. But understand that this is somewhat paternalistic, this program, and I do have authority. I'm the one that needs to make the final decision. Um, with the sublingual forms, you can actually, once people are stable, give them some takeaways. And in New South Wales, you can give up to 28 days worth of takeaways. When I'm stabilising someone in treatment, I'd get them to go for daily dosing because you really want them assessed daily to make sure that the medication's working, they're not too sedated or not, not kind of really still in lots of withdrawal. Um, and build that dose up, get it stable, and then start giving them takeaways. You know, maybe one takeaway, two takeaways a week, then three, four takeaways, a week's takeaway. Away, two weeks takeaway and then um, 28 days takeaway if it's appropriate for them. The majority of people that you're seeing in the general practice setting, and if we think of um, people who are not injecting, um, who are using, for example, codeine, they, they are, you know, in lots of other ways, very, very stable. And I would very rapidly move them towards takeaways because quite often they're working. Um, and, and if they want to stay on the sublingual, they do need to have access to those takeaways. And that's another really good time to be thinking about the injectables. You know, so the guidelines at the moment say, look, it's a good idea just to suss out how they're going to go with the medication by giving them the sublingual buprenorphine. It's the buprenorphine naloxone combination called Spoxone um, and give that for a few days up to about a week and then transfer. Um, you know, and, and that gives, gives both you and the patient a bit of time to sort out, does this medication suit you? Uh, and then when you're transferring to the injectables, you've got the option of weekly or monthly injections. Um, and that is totally freeing for people because, you know, you've got your, your, your inject and forget for 28 days, they can just get on with their lives. It can be really life-changing, can't it? Yeah. So um, just a little question, like sometimes I need to take annual leave or maybe I'll have unexpected sick leave. So... But I work in a group practice. So I have colleagues. Um, what 
what would have to happen for my patient's supply if I was unexpectedly and in an unplanned way unavailable to do their scripts? Obviously, I plan my holidays, make sure their scripts are done before I go. But this is, you know, bad things happen sometimes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and when I'm in the general practice setting, I have um, other doctors in my practice. Some of them prescribe, some of them don't. And, uh, you know, and, and as like yourself, you organise it when you go on holidays, right? I've got to make sure that my patients who are on this treatment have adequate prescriptions to last them through to when I get back. But if there are any issues while I'm away, this is the go-to person in my practice. Um, and that's pretty easy. Uh, and what I will always do there is I will actually just write a little letter to PRU, to the regulatory unit, and just say, I'm on leave for, you know, a month or whatever, and Dr. So-and-so is my locum. They don't need to do anything. They don't need to do any training. The advantage they've got is they've got access to my notes and therefore the scripts and they understand what's happening. If there's anybody that's a little bit, um, a little bit complex, um, you know, I might think about involving the local drug and alcohol team. But you know, for me in my general practice setting, my patients are really stable. When I'm going away, I will have a brief chat to my colleague and say, these are the people, this is what they're on, this is how they're going, got them all sorted, any questions? The thing that you're talking about, Martina, though, is the unexpected lead, getting sick, getting hit by a car or some, some terrible thing happening like that. Um, but once again, if you've got it set up so that, you know, you don't want to be doing this on your own without support. Um, if you can, um, you know, and so you, it's a really good idea to set up your locum, you know, from the from the get go, so that if something does happen, your your practice is aware, you know. So it's important that the rescue of your practice knows that you're prescribing, has some knowledge about this medication, you know. Just putting a little plug in there, you know, it's not a bad idea for all of us to have one or two and to have some experience in this in this very safe evidence based treatment. Um, but yeah, so set it up beforehand so that if if there is an untoward event, you, you, your, your colleagues in your practice are aware of of, of what of what you're doing and, and, and can step in. It's a little bit trickier if you're in solo practice. Um, if you're planning to do it in solo practice, I would really suggest that you have a conversation with your local drug and alcohol team and just let them know um, that you are doing this work, that um, is there any possibility for them to provide a locum cover for you? Uh, and, and in the event that you are unwell, you know, is there any possibility that they can do that? There certainly is something that does happen for us working in the state um, system that there will be people who turn up saying, my prescriber has fallen ill, what do I do? Um, but that's kind of panic stations and it's really good if you can to avoid that. Mm, sure. So um, just clarifying, my locum doesn't have to apply to the PRU to do that prescription. They can just sign off as my locum. That's really reassuring. Um, so uh, another situation might be that I've had a patient who's been seeing the drug and alcohol team and they're stabilised and they really find that the hours are not that conducive and they'd like to come to me. They might come and approach me and say, can you take over my prescribing? What would you recommend uh, that I do in that situation? For me, this is the ideal situation. This is someone who may well have been quite unstable, who's been stabilised in treatment. They've gotten the level of support that they've needed in the specialist setting. They no longer need that. 
And one of the things to be aware of in for us working in the public specialist setting is we have a limited number of people that we can see. So if we've got a whole group of people who are super stable, that means that it limits the amount of very unwell people that we can actually see. And that's our role is to really work with people that are very complex. And the great thing about this treatment, because it works so well, is that the vast majority of people settle and no longer need us in the specialist setting. So this is a perfect time to be taking on um, this prescribing. It's super easy. Honestly, it is one of the most rewarding parts of my practice. It's super easy and people turn up because they've got to come to me for their prescriptions. Um, ideally, it's with someone that you know, so you've got that therapeutic alliance already. Ideally, it's someone that you're treating their other health issues so that you can just, you know, fit that um, treatment with the OAT into everything else that you're doing for them. Um, and if they, if your patient approaches, you know, really have a think about, is this something that I can do as a part-timer, you can do it. Um, you just really need to think about how stable is this person? How complex are they? And can I manage it in, in, in my setting? Um, and if you're happy to do that, then have a chat to the drug and alcohol team. It's a really good idea to get the drug and alcohol team to write a letter to PRU saying, we agree this person is stable. The other thing that you'll want from your drug and alcohol team is an agreement that if the person becomes unstable, they will take them back, no questions asked. You know, that is really important. You want to really set that up with your local drug and alcohol team. And if your local drug and alcohol team can't agree with that, I would suggest that you don't take the patient on. Mm. You know, the reality is that vast majority of people do not destabilize. You know, they really don't. They, it, this treatment works really well and people stay really well. But you really do want to have that safety net just in case. Then what you need to do is fill in that same form you know, and, and get the drug and alcohol team to do the exit form so they're transferring it across to you. It's exactly the same. When you take on that prescribing, whether you're starting someone or whether you're taking someone that's already stable in treatment, you can change the dose. You can put the dose up, you can put the dose down um, if, it's a, if it's clinically appropriate. And one of the really lovely parts of the work that I do in a general practice setting is working with people to complete treatment not to jump off and, and, and withdraw and have a terrible time, but to slowly cut that dose down and to stop it. And sometimes they manage to actually do that permanently, which is so brilliant. So I still keep seeing them and it's their GP. They've had this treatment in the past and it's not an issue for them. Sometimes there are a group of people, because this is a chronic relapsing condition, who complete treatment, something happens in their life and they come back and they say, Hester, I need to start again. And the time that I love it when people come back and say, I need to start again, I'm really craving, or I've just started using this, this substance again, it's been a couple of weeks, I need to get back on top of it, you know, and so being that is that is a real success that someone has the that, you know, is able to kind of go, this is not working for me, I've got to get back into treatment. And that's what we want to have happen. It's a super rewarding um, treatment to, to do with people. It is long term, though, for the majority mm. of people. So if, if I've had a patient who's been on stable doses for quite a long period of time, um, they're working, life is stable. Um, how do I know when it's time to start weaning down? And if I do start weaning down, is there a percentage of the total dose that I bring them down? Is there any kind of prescribed or is it wing it and see how you go? Look, I, for me, I think it's really wing it and see how you go. Um, when I'm seeing people long-term for this, I'll periodically say to them, where do you think you're going? 
Do you think it's time to start thinking about bringing your dose down? Very commonly, they will come and say to me, it's time, I want to start cutting it down. And so we just do it slowly. And I'd say to them, well, how much do you think you can do it by? Quite often, they'll be super kind of, um, what's the word? I can't think of the word. Um, sometimes they'll be super enthusiastic. You know, that, that's what I find is people want to bring it down too quickly. And it's me going, whoa. Just let's just take it slowly, you know, because what you want to do is you want to cut that medicine down and, and they are going to go through withdrawals, you know, because that's the case with, with stopping opioids, you're going to go through withdrawals. So you want to do it nice and slowly so they have minimal withdrawals. So, we, you know, for example, if, we, if somebody is on, say, 24 milligrams of, of sublingual buprenorphine, we might take it down to 22 and just see how they're going. If they don't feel that at all, we might take it down to 20. Um, you know, and it's really working with them, uh, you know, as individuals, how much, you know, how much withdrawal are you able to manage and still parent well, work, have relationships, do all those things that are important in your life, you know, so you wanted to be a mild, maybe nothing, maybe a mild grumbling that if you think about it hard, you notice it, not that you're hanging on by the skin of your teeth to get off this treatment so you can get on with your life. It's something that, at some, and it is sometimes what patients will ask me to do, and it's one of the options I give them is, how about we do it so that I just slowly cut it down and you don't know what the dose is. For some people that can really work because it's them letting go of what the number is and just going with how is, how is, it, how is it managing my withdrawal symptoms. That's great because that um, allows the patient to check in with themselves and how they're feeling rather than just being obsessed with a number, doesn't it? Um, yeah, thanks for that. And, and, you know, it's an art and it's whole of patient care. So, yeah, thanks. Um, if I want to find out more, um, you know, Hester, I wish I had you at the end of my phone every time I was thinking about this, uh, but I'd like to feel more confident in what I'm doing. Mm. Mm, very much so. Um, if I do the full course, um, I can get accredited apparently. Um, but uh, what what would I have to do for that if I wanted to really become accredited and really get into this kind of work? Yeah, so accreditation means that once you've done it, you can prescribe for up to 200 patients in New South Wales. Um, and with accreditation, you do the full course, you do a placement in a drug and alcohol unit and you do a little exam um, just to make sure that you've taken in all the knowledge. I think the placement is fabulous. And if you're going to do that, really do it with your local drug and alcohol team so you can start to create that alliance mm. with your drug and alcohol team um, mm. so that when you need them, they're there. You know, and so you can ideally in the general practice setting, what works for me is I take on people that are stable. And, and I'm working with them around their general health, getting their lives back on track, dealing with their mental health issues. Um, and their, their, their methadonal buprenorphine is super, super stable. Um, uh, and, and I'm also making sure if, if, I, if they are becoming unstable and I'm only working there part-time, I've got the specialist team to step in and, and, and support them for a period of time that they might need to be supported. So, so thanks, Hester, because this has been re really reassuring. It makes me feel like I can um, do this for some of my patients, uh, that I don't need to take on every difficult, disorganised person with a chaotic life, but people who are, you know, more stable and have an established relationship with me um, may well be suitable for me to take this on and offer it to them 
which probably helps destigmatize the treatment that we're about to take on and help keep them um, plugged into the community and their community resources, which is um, really good, doesn't sort of make them feel separate and like they can't belong, which is great. It also helps with my um, confidence in being able to provide this treatment. Um, so thank you very much for that. Um, are there any other messages, Hester, that you think we should have discussed that uh, we haven't discussed yet? I, I do think that us as GPs can have a really amazingly important role in supporting people that have opioid dependency. I do understand that many of us may have had adverse experiences with really unstable people whose, whose conditions are really unstable. Uh, and the reality is that there is a spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum are people who have really complex mental health, drug and alcohol and physical issues that need special support. And at the other end are people who can do incredibly well in our general practice setting. It's a safe and highly evidence-based treatment. It is, however, a bit of a different approach uh, to a lot of how we do medicine in general practice. And it, you do take on a, a, a guidance, leadership, paternalistic role because you're the one as the prescriber that decides what the treatment will be. And it's really good to be upfront with patients around that, that I'm gonna be making decisions based on what I believe is best for you and safest for you. You may not always agree with me, but the reason I'm doing it is to, is to keep you safe. This is all about safety, uh, you know, and I, I've been working in this area for a long time and working in general practice in this area for a long time. And I've never had a patient um, get upset with me when I say to them, I know you might not agree with me, but I have to do what I believe is best for you. And I could be wrong, but I have to do what's best for you. You know, and, and the response to that is, Oh, all right, Hess, look, I get it. I get where you're coming from. I don't agree with you. I get where you're coming from. You know, and some of them may in fact choose to go elsewhere and, and access care elsewhere, and that's fine. But most of them understand, you know, they do understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. They're incredibly respectful. Um, they, uh, you know, I've, I've had things happen where somebody has, you know, had had a pile of nephritis, but waited a week to see me because I was their trusted doctor and didn't go and see someone else, you know. So they're, they're a group of people who are, who um, in the long term can be incredibly um, loyal and, and uh, you know, really value the care that you're giving. Mm. Interestingly, there's some new research that looks at people's experience of, um, uh, you know, opioid agonist treatment. And one of the main things that they're looking for, they want a GP. They want a GP that's going to be able to help them with their, their general health issues and that this is part of their general health. And stigma and the, the fact that they might be judged actually stops them from accessing that. So what they really want is easy access to a treatment that's actually going to help them to get on with their lives. But as we were saying before, Martina, as a GP, you don't need to take it all on you know, do ask for support, do be careful about the people that you take on that you are sure that you've got capacity to do so. Do do it in a practice that is supportive of you doing this. You don't want practice managers or reception staff really making this difficult um, for you or the practice owner making it difficult for you. If, if, if the sense in your practice is that this is not going to fly, then you've got to think hard about whether you can actually do that. But really, you know, as a practitioner, um, you know, over the years, I've really changed my practice's approach to this because 
what they've seen is that this really works. You know, and a classic one from my receptionist is, oh, so-and-so, really? I didn't know he was on methadone. Wow, he's a normal person. Yeah, he has a head, two arms, two legs. He's a normal person just like the rest of us. Uh, you know, and so really people having that experience of the, the unique and, and, and wonderful human lives that all people have, no matter what their medical conditions are. Um, and it, for me, it's been uh, an incredibly enriching experience and continues to be. And I know that by doing this work, I'm making an incredible difference to, to people's lives and that of their mm. families as well. Mm. Life-changing. All right. Um, well, thank you very much, Hester. And I hope this conversation helps some of our colleagues to develop some confidence and an openness to considering this for some of their patients, starting off where they feel very safe, asking for support through DASAS, um, and probably also uh, contacting their own drug and alcohol unit and asking for support if they need it, because I, my personal experience has been that that support has been very forthcoming. Um, I'm going to put a plug in for Health Pathways because I know that in New South Wales, most Health Pathways teams have uh, referral pages for the local drug and alcohol teams where GPs will be able to find those numbers for their local services to access support locally, as well as that general DASAS number that you mentioned, and also the GP support line uh, for SafeScript are all um, resources that GP should know are available and can be found on Health Pathways if they don't find them in their Google search. Um, so thanks very much for your encouragement and your um, advice and information, Hester. It's been a really helpful conversation, one that I hope helps other people as well. Thanks so much, Martina. And I'm going to do a plug as well for the specific interest group in addiction in the RECGP. So there's about 1,500 of us. I'm the chair. I'm really nice um, uh, in the addiction um, special interest group. We have um, a meeting every three months via Zoom. Really encourage people to come along. Even if you're not that experienced in drug and alcohol, we have some GPs who've been doing this work forever and have incredible knowledge. Um, and, you know, we really do want to share that with everybody. Uh, and, and even if you're not interested in doing OAT, we're talking about cannabis, we're talking about stimulants, we're talking about alcohol, we're talking about gambling, behavioural addictions as well. So if you've got an interest in this area in any way, um, you know, please have a look at the specific interest group in um, the RCGP. It's free to join and then you get emails from me. Well, who wouldn't want emails from you? 